Hello. This is Everything's Political, and I'm your host, Junius Williams. The reason we have Everything's Political is because so much is hidden in the weeds, laying beneath the surface in our normal encounters with the media or even with each other, that we need to have this kind of conversation. You got to know before you go. And that's the job of political education. And that's why we do what we do. This is uh, the second in a series of racism. I call it Racism Part 2. We had part one last month, for those of you who tuned in with my children, giving their opinions about the state of race and racism in the United States. But today I'm gathered around with three of my white friends, and we're going to give you the other side of the issue about racism in the United States of America. I have Frank Joyce who is a fellow member of the National Council of El- Elders, and his age is implied by that statement. <laughs> I have Elizabeth Rubin, better known as E, who is 48, who works in government here in New Jersey. And I have Eric Roberts, who's a strategy and operations manager at a startup company living in New York, age 24. So what are we going to be about today? So if you were with us in last month when we had racism part one, you know we ended with the big scary question, is racism here to stay? If so, or even if not, what can we do about it? So we're going to get to that question, but by a little different route today. I want to first of all thank all of you for coming on my podcast. It's not easy, I imagine, especially with your timing, but uh, something about race that kind of discourages people from talking about it in this country, but maybe not with you folks. I consider you all my friends, and if you weren't, I wouldn't have you on the program. (laughs) So let's begin with. A kind of a basic question. Based on what you have experienced growing up and living in these United States of America, what has racism meant to white people and to black people from your perspective? Let's start with Frank. Well, it's great to be here first, Junius, and it's it's great to meet your uh, other guests. And we, we go way back. And we go back to a time when I grew up in all white suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. My parents were early white flighters, if you know that expression of people who had lived in the city, but who moved to the suburbs uh, in no small part for the purpose of getting away from black people. And I went to all white schools through high school. But then happened, I'll just tell the shortest possible version of this story, I was driving down the infamous eight-mile road in Detroit, Michigan one day. I saw a picket line, and I was curious. I turned my car around, and I came back, and I saw that people were protesting outside of a privately owned swimming pool in Oak Park, Michigan, right on the other side of Eight Mile Road at Oak Park and Greenfield, because it was a whites-only swimming pool. 
Now, remember, this is 1960 in the north. We're not talking about Mississippi or Alabama here. We're talking about a suburb of Detroit. So I joined the picket line, and that was kind of the beginning of my lifelong involvement in anti-racist work. And I read a quote recently. In fact, I used it in an op-ed that was published recently, and I'll mangle it. I wish I had it right in front of me, but I don't. Uh, it's from a scholar, a California scholar, who said basically, racism is for white people. Racism is for the control of white people. To control black people, we have tanks and guns. And I think that's a deep, deep statement. It's white people who are invested in white supremacy. It's white people who invented white supremacy. It gets me so cranked when I hear these right-wingers talk about identity politics. You're the people that created the identity of race. You're the people that invented white and black and that there should be a hierarchical relationship between white people, black people, indigenous people, Asian people, Hispanic people, etc. So I, early on, as Junius knows, got involved and helped create an organization called People Against Racism. And our focus was, and my focus more or less, in the many lives I've had since, been on anti-racist organizing in the white community. Uh, and that's still work that I've involved with uh, today in my local community, but also in you know national and bigger audiences too. I I, I was going to say you kind of getting ahead of the story there, but I appreciate that uh, story. How about you, E? Yeah. So the question was, what is racism meant to white and black people? And I think for all of us, it's incredibly limiting, right? It racism limits like the richness of our lives. And it just, it deprives us of so many experiences, collective experiences we could be having. I think it causes pain and stress for everybody. I think that the ways in which white people adjust their lives to adapt to racism is ridiculous and constraining. And they sort of, yeah, like if they really looked at it, they would realize that, again, they're just limiting their own human experience um, to adapt to racism. And I think, of course, the impacts on Black people are horrific in terms of the impacts on health, economics, everything, right? So I think, yes, we're all being harmed by it. Some of us, some folks may be more aware of the harms. And I think for white people, often we've rationalized these these things, that these gymnastics that we go through to adapt to racism as some, somehow benefiting us. But I would argue that that's not correct. Next, Eric Roberts. I think those are great answers that we just heard. I really want to pick up on something you said, which is about the limiting nature of it. That for me, racism, sexism, you know, any sort of ism and xenophobia, all sorts of the maladies in our society are a result of collapsing people's very multifaceted, deep, rich, profound identities into one thing. And so you are, you know, sort of definitionally limiting others and yourself, as he touched on. So I think that's very adept to mention. I'll say for myself as well as a, as a white person, you know, in the same way that racism is limiting to one thing, I, I, I don't want to think of myself only as sort of like a, a white 
person entering the conversation. I think that identity is extremely important and needs to be at the center of how I try to go on my anti-racism journey, knowing that it is people who have looked like me and that look like me and me myself that uh, perpetuate these types of systems and created them in the first place. But I also think of myself in my Jewish identity. That's, that's very strong to me. My mom actually grew up right outside Newark and her rabbi was Joachim Prinz, who marched with Martin Luther King mm-hmm. you know, in, the, in the civil rights movement. And, and that is something that I hold very near and dear that as a Jewish person, I feel it's, my, it's part of my identity. It's part of who I am that I need to you know, stand up for people who are oppressed or subjugated and not let that happen as it's happened to my people in the past. So limiting, as he said, and I think there's also some responsibility to be taken for all of our identities at all times. Elizabeth uh, E., how would you characterize your own experience with racism? I mean, it's a long answer, so cut me off if I get too long-winded. But I have a very unconventional life, I think, in that I was raised by a radical. My father was radicalized in the Army. He grew up in upstate New York, had never met a person of color. And he went in the army and my dad was like deeply intellectual. And so he immediately recognized everything that the book, The Color of Law is about. He, you know, when he found out that his brothers who were were of color were not going to get the same benefits that he got with when he, when they left, got out of the Korean war, you know, like that just blew his mind. And so he, without using language about anti-racism, my dad didn't know any of that language, but like he really, he felt great solidarity and and felt like it was part of his purpose in life to be in solidarity with people of color and their struggle against oppression. And so I was born in Oakland and I, I did not, I like, I missed a lot of the programming that I think a lot of white people get. I mean, my parents kept me in the public schools during white flight. And they just, they know, I didn't get a lot of the messages that I've heard other people my age tell me, like they were told not to go into certain neighborhoods. We went wherever, like I, you know, I grew up, we went to the, to the, your black Muslim bakery in downtown Oakland. I didn't know that wasn't normal uh, for white people. So that, you know, I just had a very different upbringing for which I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. And when I was very young, my dad was from upstate New York and we would go back live there for periods. And I heard the N word for the first time. And I came home and told my father that this lady, our neighbor, I was having uh, hot chocolate with her and she dropped the N word. And I, I had never heard it, but I knew it was bad. And I went home and I told my dad and he said, he told me it was, I was like five years old. He said, it was my obligation to tell her that I would not engage with her. I would not have a relationship with her if she ever used language like that around me again. So, you know, when we were very little, my dad was like, you got to push back against racism. And that, and that was just became focused on systems as I got older. Eric, you know, you mentioned Rabbi Prince. He was certainly a fixture in Newark civil rights when, uh, when I arrived here. He's unfortunately he's dead now. What does the word privilege mean to you uh, in light of uh, your kind of upbringing with your mother in that church and the and the kind of environment that Rabbi Prince fostered? What about privilege? I think very to the point, 
privilege is something that one holds that allows them to move through space and time in a way that others can't, in a way that's beneficial. And the other piece of that equation to me is that privilege is finite and fleeting. And one person who has privilege today may not have the privilege tomorrow, might not have had it yesterday. And it is incumbent upon the person with privilege to understand that privilege and to try to use it in ways that distribute it more equitably. Uh, I think my mom kind of growing up in that environment, you know, we, we would talk about things like very proximate to her youth, you know, in the 60s in, in Newark, Jews were people of incredible lack of privilege. And now as a, you know, a person who is coded as white in the US, their Jewish identity can be, can, you know, escape them. No one looks at a person generally and says, oh, I know that's a Jewish person. You don't wear it on your sleeve. So you end up having this de facto privilege that you don't have to deal with the same sort of uh, maladies that you might have had to dealt with in, you know, World War II Europe or something like that. So for me, in short, privilege is something that I'm keenly aware of. I know I hold it in a disproportionate amount to what I you know, may or may not deserve, but that makes me forced to reckon with it and try to understand that every day. What about you, Frank? Well, I, I wanted to file a, a little bit of a dissent about the use of the term privilege, not because I don't think it exists. It obviously does. But uh, I think a lot about the vocabulary of white supremacy and the vocabulary of racism and how it is perpetuated and passed from generation to generation. And I think the term privilege is not as, and I have used it myself, I don't use it anymore, but for a long time I used it. It, it served a purpose. But one of the problems with trying to talk with other white people about their privilege is that if you tell somebody over and over and over again, you have a privilege, the first response, and it's not entirely unreasonable, is to say, well, thank you, how do I keep it? Um, and it takes us away from the point that E made that I really appreciated is we don't talk enough with white people about what white supremacy costs them. We think somehow that by just saying you have advantages, that then they'll say, oh, gosh, uh, I guess that's wrong. How, how do I give them up? I don't think it works like that. I think there's a conversation to be had about complicity. The other thing about privilege is that it kind of takes us away from a more systemic analysis. And I can go on about how I think we can talk about the costs of white supremacy in, in the spirit of what Elizabeth said. And of course, white supremacy was created 500, more than 500 years ago now. We're in, the, uh, we're in the 28th generation of white people having invented a point of view to justify colonialism, to justify the taking of land and the enslaving of people based on, in large part, skin color and baking that into our language, our education, our teaching, our values. But it is to jump into last week's question, I guess, I, I think there are things that we can do to change that. I was fascinated with your suggestion that uh, what white people should be talking about is complicity. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe some of the other folks as well? Complicity, that's, that, that's a hard word to swallow, isn't it? 
I'll use it in a context that's another sort of crusade of mine that it took me a long time to figure out. All of us have had conversations with white people about slavery, for example. And a common response that we've all heard is, well, my ancestors didn't own any slaves. Uh, and so I don't accept your, you know, trying to put that trip on me that I somehow had something to do with the, with the system of slavery. Well, of course, in the first place, most people don't actually know that. You know, it's, it's not like you can go to 123.com and find out, was my great uncle a slave owner in Alabama <laughs> so many years ago? Plus, it avoids the question of how Northerners were complicit in the slave system and benefited from it and so on and so forth. Set that to the side for the moment. All white people, I don't care if you've been here for one generation or for 10 generations, all white people are complicit in creating the system that dislocated and took possession of the land that was once the land of indigenous people. There's a two-word name for that system. It's called real estate. Everyone who owns a home, who has a deed, whether it has a restrictive covenant or not, is complicit in the system of white supremacy that took the land in the first place. And by the way, just one little side note, slavery cannot, by definition, be the original sin. I don't like that frame either. But it can't be the original sin because the original sin was to steal the land in the first place. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any place to put the slaves. But now let's play devil's advocate. Remember you said, so what? I wasn't here. Maybe we can just accept that and move on. Isn't that one of the symptoms of this thing that uh, I call privilege? That you have the privilege of ignoring history. How about that, E? Yeah. Well, people choose that all the time, right? To ignore history. By the way, I know for a fact that on my mom's side of the family that we were slave owners. The family was. And I think that that is like ancestral poison, right? I do a lot of ancestral healing work around that because that's like, you know, a legacy that you carry um, that I think is, you know, toxic to its core. But I think like we're complicit in so many ways, whether it's our housing choices, you know, the coded language we use. And look, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, right? Like, be clear, I'm part of it. I'm complicit too. Um, though when we are quiet at, at work, when we see that, or, in, you know, in, in spaces that we're not, we're not like actively being anti-racist and, and um, changing policies and, and defending our, our brothers and sisters of color, like in the moment, um, there's a million ways that we're complicit. And so I just personally try to be conscious of that every day. And, um, you know, we don't have a reparation system in this country. I fully support reparations. So uh, what I try to do is pay my reparations with my, with my professional life and advancing anti-racist work. I think you mentioned that. Uh, well, let me ask this question, and and you, you can you can come in with your answer there. We've heard some of the symptoms I call them of uh, of privilege. When does privilege 
catch up with you? Well, I'll say I'll say two things on that. First, on the the prior question, which I think gets to the heart of this um, about complicity in being privileged. You know, the, the counter argument that you laid out of, well, I my family didn't perpetrate this, or my you know, I'm not the person who did it. I'm not the person who harbors these thoughts. That sort of misses the forest for a tree, right? You know, that's the the exact kind of sort of individual thinking that misses the systems level problems that doesn't actually, it's it's not really intelligible um, in a conversation about racism today. So the, the limits of privilege, you know, in one sense, as he had mentioned, and Frank built on, you know, we're all sort of losers in white privilege. So the, the limits of privilege have ended. <laughs> we have lost um, and, and continue to lose. And then I think as well, you know, that as we go forward, all of the bad things that are happening today that have a racial twist to them, which are most things from poverty and socioeconomic inequality to climate change and environmental degradation, you know, go down the gamut. As these things get worse, which I think probably has a proportional relationship to as white supremacy gets stronger, then again, we all come out the worse for it. So I think the limits of privilege are sort of definitionally as soon as privilege starts. But you say all that. However, white folks still got the power. I mean, isn't that what the president says to us in one way or another? Things might be bad. We might be going to hell. The world may be in. But we're still white. Isn't that a commodity in and of itself? It's not a commodity that I hope to buy. <laughs> it is unfortunately a commodity conferred to people, um, which might make it not a commodity. But I think that, again, is, is part of the individualist lens to take to how we approach the world and approach each other. So for me, if you're, if you're thinking about things at the systems level, then your, your whiteness should be both something that you carry close, knowing that it confers to you certain privileges that are not fair, not warranted, and also gives you an, an obligation to raise your hand, to try to educate yourself, to read, to talk to folks and, and try to be better. Now, I'm, I'm very interested in how white people came to the point where they uh, invested in white supremacy. That's a system in and of itself, right? Where do you learn it? You learn it from your family. You learn it in school. You learn it in your church. You learn it in your synagogue. You learn it from the media. You increasingly learn it from the media in this day and age. The media is sort of the purveyor of white supremacy uh, in a very profound way because of how powerful television is uh, in particular. So it is taught, and that's why I think Education is an example of one arena in which it's possible to make very important intervention. So the struggle around something like the 1619 Project, for example, struggles around school curriculum, I think are very important. And for white people who are woke, I like the term woke, actually. Some people don't, but I like it. <laughs> one thing that people who are woke can do is think up strategies and tactics to intervene in the system by which white supremacy is, is 
transmitted from one generation to the next and from one person to the next in the same generation. Yeah, well, I just want to say, I don't don't think that uh, it's just like programming we get when we're little, right? Or we're born. Um, I think it, it, it's happening throughout our lives, right? And there are these, these characteristics about of white supremacy that we don't even realize we're perpetuating that are like around, around culture, right? And what cultural uh, practices we value. And, um, you know, things like what the definition of professional is, right? That's all based on white supremacy, what we see as professionalism. And it, it took me so long to realize, um, like, oh, that all that nonsense that I see as professional, that's just white, like white supremacy that started getting programmed into me. Um, so, it, you know, even if you're not born into a, um, into like a family that's actively programming white supremacy, it's, there's a million, like your history books, right? Like every, every point of your life. So you have to just constantly be deprogramming your brain, because it's it's the dominant culture, right? And it, it shows up in a million nuanced ways. It's like so pervasive. You're just bombarded. So even like I said, even if your parents don't teach you, you're, you learn it in every setting you're in. There's a book that I'm reading called Raising Racist. The Socialization of White Children in the Jim Crow South. Book description, white Southerners recognized that the perpetuation of segregation required whites of all ages to uphold a strict social order, especially the young members of the next generation. And then it goes on to say, uh, author Christina DeRocha reveals how white adults in the late 19th and early 20th centuries continually reinforce race and gender roles to maintain white supremacy. DeRosha examines the practices, mores, tradition that train white children to fear, dehumanize, and disdain their black neighbors. Key words, fear, dehumanize, and disdain. Uh, from, from what the two of you have just said, and both of you I consider to be very woke, you understand that this is still going on. That's still going on. And I would not have suspected or expected anything less, but let me just read you another little passage. This comes from the New York Times. They had a question during, I guess it was inspired by the the COVID era. It says, what have we lost? The dream. And I want to uh, particularly Pay attention to a black woman from Philadelphia. This is what she says. The American dream died for me the day I entered kindergarten. Before that, I was an incredibly bright child, self-assured and besotted with learning. In this environment, I learned how inequality is transmitted from one generation to the next. I was taught that my existence was problematic. I was labeled unintelligent, inferior, less, terms all interchangeable with black, brown, and female. I emerged with some aspect of myself intact, albeit cast into a woke state of American dreamlessness. (laughs) That's powerful. That's powerful. 
Yes, 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 yes. It, it did, and and it uh, woke me up to some of my own experiences. I, I I think that 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 kind of proves the point that this thing is still going on. So, Eric, uh, what do we do about that? How do we get people past that kind of uh, environment? Obviously, her teachers and all the other things that she said. All of that's involved in it. You guys were talking about the systemic aspect of it. So how do we get past that? Well, I think the premise is spot on and how Ian Frank described it as well. These things are baked into you when you're young, but we're also learning them every day now. And I think of the journey towards becoming anti-racist. You know, I, I don't even see it. And there's no end point for that. For me, it's just a constant struggle to try to be that because Becoming anti-racist is systematically taking blinders off for things that I was taught when I was young. And I don't even know what blinders are being put on me now that I'm trying to to actively take off. But to get past that, I think, first, there's a lot of honesty that needs to happen. Um, You know, in the last episode, and I've heard Brian Stevenson talk a lot about this, there's been no truth and reconciliation about slavery and about racism today. That it's going to be very hard for us to make the broad societal level changes if there's not that honesty about who we are and where we've been. So I think that's the first step. And it's both on an individual level, you know, white people and everyone coming to grips with their own racism. I know I have it. I don't know all of the ways that I have it. And that's what I'm trying to learn about every day. And then at a Systems and community level too, understanding that these things have been baked into our institutions, our laws, you know, everything. And then on, you know, in your day to day, for me, what I'm trying to do, this is not the the only model or maybe even a great model, but it's been my model. It's voracious reading, first of all, just trying to find all of these perspectives that I've never known and was not taught. It's also trying to put myself in position to be wrong, like coming on this podcast, for example. And, you know, another example at work, I organized a monthly dialogue series on race and racism, where we take a topic of the day. We've done ones on racism in sports, protests. Uh, This all started a couple of months ago after the murder of George Floyd. But being in those environments where you have a diverse set of people speaking uh, and perspectives given, and you might say something that's wrong or offensive or something like that. And you need to be brave enough, I think, to try and to be wrong, and then humble enough to accept that sometimes you're wrong, or sometimes you're not learned on something, or sometimes you're not woke. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to do every day. I can talk about one specific thing that I'm involved with in my own uh, local community. Uh, I've lived for 30 years now in a legendary white suburb called Gross Point, Michigan, which we've been involved in quite a conversation uh, over the last several months because you would be amazed if you went to Gross Point, Michigan, at how many people have Black Lives Matter signs in front of their houses. Now, I'm aware that putting up Mm. a sign is, you know, virtue signaling and might mean a lot or it might mean a little, but it means something because there's been a backlash and people who have Black Life Science Matters uh, in their yards, about 150 of them have gotten anonymous letters telling them basically to take the signs down. And they're moderately, you know, like intimidating because 
right off the bat, you're getting the point, we're watching you. You know, we know who you are. So we've been involved in, we've got many campaigns going on, but one of them, and we just took out a full page ad in the Gross Point Times. I like this concept. There are three of us. We call ourselves the GP3. But we're three generations of gross pointers, and we wrote this ad defending why we have Black Lives Matter signs in front of our houses and telling people where they could get one. And within a day, 25 more people had asked for signs that they could put in front of their house. Now, again, I don't have illusions about signs change policy in and of themselves, but I just think wherever we are as white people, there are issues that are on the table. We don't have to invent them. They're already there. And we can find ways to engage and involve and support and defend and extend in the way, Eric, you're obviously doing in EU too, extend a different kind of conversation in the white community that if we don't do it, nobody else is. The status quo is you know, has inertia behind it. It is going to just keep on going. But there's always something a white person can do in their neighborhood, in their church, in their workplace, in their school. You know, there's no excuse for not doing something. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. And there's always something because white supremacy is so nefarious and has infiltrated every single Thing that affects our lives. So like we could just work all day, all, be working all day, you know, 24 seven, and we would just be starting to chip away at it. And Junius, you just, when you're talking about education, like, like I work on public safety, right? That's my area. I look at how we change public safety policies to make them basically make them less, less racist. But like when you have that, I mean, that's why I just cried when you read that passage, like we have Black children that are entering school and immediately being told that they're less than and, and you know, just undercutting their sense of confidence and their belief in themselves, it's going to allow them to go on to do great things. Like, I mean, that's, that's just overwhelming to think that across the country, we have these system, the system of education that is harming people like that. So now I'm like, oh, I got to switch to education. <laughs> But it's just, it's a lot. There's so many systems that we have to tackle all at once. Uh, In my introductory podcast, I talk about two kinds of people in the world. Uh, I I maybe want to sing the song for you, but I don't think I will. Just two (laughs) kinds of people in the world. I'm not going to sing it. The people are those who accommodate and those who resist. And this is how I reason it. Now, if white people accommodate, that means they accept privilege. If white people are in resistance, it means loss of privilege. Uh, How has that worked out in your life as you struggle against white privilege? My short answer is I think I've gained more than I've lost. You know, I got kicked out of the house when I was 19 years old. <laughs> I was estranged from my parents for many, many years. That's a that's a loss. And actually, even my siblings were divided. Some were sort of on my side and, and some were not. I was wondering if you were going to tell that story. <laughs> I didn't want to push you into that, but that was from your 
from that one time right. you were in that yeah. demonstration. Um, and that reproduced itself in, in several ways over the years. But that's, that is the nature of struggle, and it is the nature of a, of a political life. But people, uh, you know, one, one of my little micro campaigns is that white people need heroes, too. So November 7th, I bring this up every chance I get, November 7th should be a national holiday. What's November 7th? November 7th is the birthday of Elijah Lovejoy. Elijah Lovejoy was an abolitionist who met, most people have never heard of, published a, a, an abolitionist newspaper, among other things. And KKK light people more than once destroyed his press and burned down his office. But uh, in the end, they killed him. They, they burned down his press and they took his life. And fast forward to Viola Liuzzo, who, of course, is from Detroit, uh, who was a martyr of the Selma to Montgomery March, and of whom, I'm proud to say, there is a statue in Detroit, Michigan of Viola Liuzzo celebrating the sacrifice that she made uh, in the support of freedom. It's freedom for everyone, right? I mean, it's a cliche to say, if someone is not free, none of us are free. But no, I believe that. I believe it too. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's the real deal. So, uh, yes, there are risks involved. And yes, you'll lose friends. But you'll gain more. And that's a part of the message that I think we can bring to white people, too. Young man, what do you think? What has happened to you? Well, I, I definitely agree that so far in my life, I have felt more gains than losses from trying to do this work. But maybe to push on that idea a little bit, I wonder if that doesn't fully solve the problem, right? Um, if you, if I am able to try to engage in this work and still maintain my exact same privilege and move through the world exactly as easily, then I'm not sure if anything has really been won or changed or improved. I think about it mostly in terms of business or, you know, capitalism. I've recently read this book called Winners Take All, which the thesis of the book essentially is that folks who have won in the game of capitalism have then created the rules that reinforce their wins and create their purchases that are hard to, to tear down, right? So if you're really trying to work against a system, but the system is set up such that your perch is never threatened, mm. then you have not really made the impact that maybe you want to have. I have not made the impact that I, have, that I want to have if I'm in my same position as I was five years ago, 10 years ago. So that is a very perceptive point of view. And that brings me to my next question for all of you. We, we got three woke white people that I'm talking to. And, and like I said, if, if I didn't trust you to be there, I wouldn't have had you on the program. But mm -hmm. so what? We got these big systems of operation. I gave you one example about education, how racism controls that. If we talk about housing, if we talk about health, even the American Medical Association said, hey, uh, health is racist. 
Uh, we, we could talk about police, of course, and, and the, the White House. I mean, it's just saturated with the whole concept of white supremacy. We could go on and on and on. How can just individual conversions, how can that impact on all those systems that are taking us in well, the other I, direction? I think it can't. Unless it's translated into other things. One of the things that Ibram Kendi talks about, uh, I think very consistently, and this has its limits too, but if it doesn't translate into policy, if it doesn't translate into something that actually improves the life of an indigenous person or a black person or a Hispanic person, then step back and take a look and maybe you're not doing it right. But it's also important to have a long range point of view. Because you cannot know in any given moment whether what you're what the impact of what you're doing is going to be. And Junius, I know you know this too. But let me switch to a. I just the interview I was on just before this was about the anti-war movement, and one of the things we were talking about was points in the anti-war movement where we felt, even though demonstrations were getting bigger, for example, and this, that, and the other thing, the war was still going on. We felt like we weren't accomplishing anything, but we were. And now I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for what we did accomplish, because you do have to look at the arc of change and how it translates into policy and so on. I'm probably a minority on this, too. I think the fact that there's 81 million people who voted against Trump is really very encouraging. I think that's a great thing. And that didn't happen by accident or overnight. It was the product of a whole lot of individual conversations and phone calls and postcards and knocking on doors. So big social change takes a big movement, and it has a lot of moving parts. And by the way, it's a mess. People don't get along. They fight with each other. They get discouraged. People drop in. They go out. They come back. Uh, and they think too small. I mean, when we talk about we really need systemic change. I mean, we really need systemic change. We don't need to just fix a little mass incarceration there and fix a little school curriculum there. But each of those struggles feed into something bigger. How about the rest of you? Uh, well, Junius, I like when you said, so what? I kind of like, yeah, so what? And that's definitely how I feel about people sticking a BLM sign in their front yard. Like, well, la-di-da, what else have you done? Because that's really insufficient, right? But I really appreciate Frank's words of encouragement because I get so down. But I, I look at like the work we did around, you know, I've been doing, I worked for Tom Hayden like 25 years ago in LA. We talked about, we totally redefining public safety and investing in the people who lived in the neighborhood. And people thought that we were crazy and they've been thinking I'm crazy for the last 25 years. So they do this work. Well, guess what? Now we're the hot thing, right? And like my, my all my colleagues mm. are going to brief the White House next week to talk about this because like all of a sudden we don't look so nuts. Unfortunately, we had to have the you know martyrs and have the deaths of George Floyd and and so many other people to wake people up that there's like a radically different way of doing public safety. But I think you know the moment 
I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch, but it may be here. It took a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of people thinking you're nuts. But I think Frank's right. Like we do not realize when we're in the day to day that we could be making big social change. And and I think many of us are like yourself, right? I mean, you have this long history of driving social change. And I'm sure there were lots of days where you felt like, am I making a difference? Yeah. And you felt like, so what? Yeah. And you have accomplished incredible things and moving the arc towards justice. So we've got to just keep slogging on. Eric, you get the last word. You're the young man. You're going to be here longer than I am anyway, theoretically. Go ahead. Well, on the, to the original question of, um, of what it means to make these changes on an individual level, I also take solace in Frank's words of encouragement that I often feel very, very down about racism, existentially down. Like sometimes it's hard to feel like you can do anything. And so for me, if I'm doing something, sometimes you have to have somewhere to lay your hat, you know? So if I have changed one person's mind or changed one person's belief about something very small, or someone has looked at my Goodreads account, you know, an online platform to see what I'm reading, and they say, oh, that Ta-Nehisi Coates book look, looks interesting, and they pick it up, that's a win. And no, it's not the systems level change, and no, it's not the policy that we need. And we, on this podcast, we know that's where we need to go. That's, we know that's where we need to get. But if that's always my North Star, then I'm going to feel very sad a lot of the time. So I need to take some solace in if I've learned anything, and I have learned a few things, it's that we need to do a better job of taking care of one another in the movement for the very reasons we've just been discussing. If we can't build that part of the beloved community, then maybe people shouldn't be listening to us in the first place anyway. But we do have an obligation to take care of each other. That's a part of, that's a part of building the movement. And to create spaces for joy too, right? Like a Junius's house where they play music and, you know, that's part of being a radical is creating beautiful moments and solidarity. Adrian Marie Brown, all power to pleasure activism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, I guess I don't have to ask you this question, but I'm going to Ask for a yes or no answer because we're running out of time. Is racism in America here to stay? Yes or no? For a long time, I think. It's on its way, maybe out, eventually. If I think anything else, I'll just get sad again. I want to thank you all. This has been really beautiful. Uh, Now I see why you're my friends. Uh, this is everything's political and we're on our way up next month we're going to be having a conversation about our new president he will be taking his office on the 20th so we want to preserve that for a conversation about President Biden ridding us of this scourge Uh, so we want to see if we can't ask the right questions even before he takes office and maybe teach people what they can do to encourage him along the way. 
So I'm out of here, and I want to thank you thank all you. for participating. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Bye.